Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Where the city stands as the vaccine deadline approaches. It's just a wait-and-see game to see how many people will leave the city rather than comply with these mandates. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The border is open to vaccinated tourists, but not vaccinated asylum seekers. Something I heard at the camp this week was what is more essential than fleeing for your life and trying to claim asylum. What to expect during holiday travel this year and our series on housing and racial covenants continues. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Yesterday marked a key date in the city's impending vaccine mandate for all city workers. City employees would have had to receive their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine in order to be fully vaccinated by the final deadline of December 2nd. The San Diego Police Department has so far given the strongest pushback to this mandate, which has fueled an ongoing disagreement between police and the mayor's office over a potential staffing shortage that could result from the mandate. Joining me now with more is KPBS General Assignment Reporter Kivi Alvarado. Kitty, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. The deadline for city workers to receive their first dose of the COVID vaccine was yesterday. Do we know how many city workers got the shot? I'm looking at the numbers right here, and over 8,000 employees have been fully vaccinated, and that's out of over 11,000. We've seen the most resistance to get the shot from the city's police department. Do we have numbers on how many officers are vaccinated or unvaccinated? 730 are not fully vaccinated, and 80 of them did not want to respond. We did speak with Jack Schaefer, the president of the Police Officers Association. They did put out a recent survey that showed about 300 officers 
would rather be fired than get the vaccine. And to make it clear, he does tell us that the union does support vaccinations and he's fully vaccinated. But what they don't support is the mandate. They do feel officers have the right to choose whether or not to get vaccinated. And he says a lot of them feel especially strong if they had prior infections. And even though that's contrary to the CDC's recommendations that even people with previous COVID infections get vaccinated. SDPD has warned that mandating vaccination among its ranks could cause officers to seek employment elsewhere. Have we seen any truth to that so far? No, and not that I know of, but from what Schaefer tells us, again, the president of the union, he says that those who aren't going to comply really are considering very strongly going to neighboring departments. And that would be really easy for them to do because all departments are struggling with staffing. What have we been hearing from the police union on this impending deadline? You know, something that I did find really interesting is the way most of us understand the the mandate is a firm, hard deadline of December 1st or 2nd, making this week the deadline to get the first dose. But the union tells us they do have regular conversations with the mayor's office. And from what they understand is that as long as officers have at least one dose on board by December 1st, they will not be dismissed. And that doesn't include the exemptions for religious reasons or medical reasons. And the city has to go through and decide on each one. So this could play out for a while. Has the union indicated how many officers could potentially leave because of these mandates? Well, based on the survey they put out and uh, the president said he would just be guessing, but probably about 200. But maybe that is even a, a high number. But no one really knows. And these officers may comply last minute, but it's clear the city is not going to change the rules. The mayor responded yesterday to us saying that they already have about 150 officers either starting uh, the department or just about to start, which sounds good. But the union tells us that each hire will cost the city about $200,000 to train. And that's just the basics. So they won't have as much experience. And if you do the math on each, each replacement, it's really costly. There's been conflicting messaging from the mayor's office and the police department about staffing issues. What can you tell us about that? The union tells us they're alarmingly understaffed and it's causing slow response times. They even included an incident that happened in Hillcrest as an example that took about two hours to respond to a car driving on the sidewalk. But the mayor disputes that and he says that it's not because of understaffing and blames an increase in call volume, saying that on that night, calls were up about 90 percent. And again, he adds that they will continue to hire new officers and they will be able to handle this. The San Diego Fire Department has also had its own issues with vaccine hesitancy among the ranks. Is it anything we're seeing to the scale of what's going on with the police? It doesn't seem as big of an issue, but the numbers are still high. I did speak with Chief Colin Stowell, and he did give me the numbers. He says about 12 percent of the fire department are unvaccinated, and he does make it clear they do support the mandate and are encouraging members to get vaccinated. But they, like every other fire department across the state, are struggling with staffing, and they had to brown out a fire unit last month. But they did that at a double house, so they did have coverage. So anyone leaving at this point, it it will hurt their staffing levels. And ultimately, let's bring this conversation back to why the mandates are put in place in the first place. Well, I suppose that the mayor's office just believes that it's the right thing to do, especially with departments that deal with the community one-on-one. They just really want to be an example for maybe the rest of the country is what a mandate and what public health should look like. But ultimately, it's just a wait-and-see game to see how many people will leave the city rather than comply with these mandates. 
I've been speaking with KPBS General Assignment reporter Kitty Alvarado. Kitty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Last week, the U.S. border opened for travelers vaccinated against COVID-19, but it didn't open for asylum seekers. Title 42 has presented a double standard, keeping asylum seekers in limbo across the border. Joining me with more is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, welcome. Thank you, Jade. So first, remind us what Title 42 is and why it is so controversial. Well, Title 42 is a public health order that the Trump administration started in March 2020 because of the pandemic, right? They didn't want to let people into the country because of fear of spreading uh, COVID-19. And it's particularly controversial in the context of asylum because Title 42 essentially blocks asylum for people who are trying to cross through the U.S. border. And in what ways does it do that? Well, before Title 42, the way people claimed asylum in the U.S. was they would present themselves at the port of entry, talk to a Border Patrol official who would determine whether they had what's called credible fear, right? They would say, I'm being persecuted in my country of origin, and if I go back, I'm afraid that I'll be killed. Once that happened, they would be allowed into the U.S. and start their asylum process through the courts, Right. To be clear, they wouldn't be given asylum right there and then. They would just have a chance to start the process. And this was the legal way for people to come to the border, present themselves and begin that process. With Title 42, when asylum seekers present themselves at the border and say, hey, I have a reasonable fear of, of being sent back home, border officials can simply point to Title 42 and say, sorry, we can't allow you into the country because of the pandemic. And they are simply turned away with no screening, no talking to a judge, no verification that they do have credible fear. Hmm. You know, and many argue that this policy isn't about public health, including some 1,300 medical professionals who signed letters to the CDC calling for an end to the policy. What can you tell us about that? Well, that's kind of the growing chorus of criticisms against this policy, uh, and specifically at the Biden administration for continuing the Trump era policy. I guess the main argument is that there are more vaccines available, more COVID testing that's available now. And if the priority really is public health, there are mechanisms in place to safeguard public health while still honoring the people's right to asylum. Mm. And talk to me more about the double standard here. Um, Many say that the policy implies that a vaccinated asylum seeker is of a higher public health risk than a vaccinated tourist, which is not true. Uh, Why is that a dangerous train of thought? Well, just the double standard is obvious, right? It's obvious as soon as you allow vaccinated tourists into the country, uh, why not asylum seekers, right? Something I heard at the camp this week was what is more essential than fleeing for your life and trying to claim asylum? And the fact that the administration prioritized vaccinated tourists over asylum seekers, even vaccinated asylum seekers, just left the people at the camp feeling like they're being ignored, like they're not prioritized, like the administration doesn't really care about their plight. And back to what you said about the dangerous rhetoric of implying or suggesting that there's something inherently more dangerous about vaccinated asylum seekers versus vaccinated tourists. I mean, it just goes back to history of really racist, uh, xenophobic narratives around foreigners being inherently dangerous or dirty or spreading germs, right? We, we've seen that over and over again throughout history. 
And it's even almost a variation of some of the attacks that members of the Asian community face here in the U.S. connected to the pandemic and where it came from and different things like that. Hmm. And the Biden administration is being criticized for not ending this Trump era policy. Why is it being kept in place? Well, the stated policy, uh, the stated reason behind the policy hasn't really changed in different press calls, even as recently as uh, CNN open forum with Anderson Cooper. President Biden said that this is in place because of public health and public safety in the pandemic. Just this week, though, I asked the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, to just tell me why vaccinated tourists are okay, but vaccinated asylum seekers are not. They told me to go to the White House. So it seems like we're kind of getting the federal runaround over here. And back to, to the question we I asked previously, you know, you have those 1,300 medical professionals who signed letters to the CDC calling for an end to the policy. They're citing that there's just no uh, data to support the policy, correct? Correct. They're saying there's no data, which is something that lawyers, advocates, and the migrants themselves are jumping on, right? There's no data to support it. And from the beginning, this is just kind of underscoring what they've thought all along, that this was never about public health. This is about keeping migrants away. Uh, Some of the lawyers I've spoken to are quick to remind me that uh, Title 42 and using it in this way was the idea of Stephen Miller, the advisor to former President Trump, who has a very anti-immigrant background and has actually spoken publicly about ending or slowing down at least the asylum process here in the U.S., Hmm. You know, when asylum seekers are expelled from the country uh, and or turned away, what kind of conditions are they facing in Mexico as they hope and wait for due process? Well, they, they're, they're easy targets for gang members in, in Mexico, right? In some of these places, particularly in the Texas border, uh, they're set, being sent back to cities that are, that are on the State Department's, you know, travel watch list, level four, the highest level travel advisories that you shouldn't go to these places because they are dangerous. And the federal government is sending back people who are by definition among the most vulnerable in society. Uh, there's an organization, Human Rights First, who published uh, monthly reports on what they see and what's been happening to people who have been turned back. And they've documented uh, 7,600 kidnappings and attacks on migrants who were blocked from entering since Biden took office. Where does Title 42 stand right now? Is this something the Biden administration plans to end? Uh, If the administration plans to end, they haven't really indicated uh, that they will. There's no timeline for it. There's no, there hasn't really been any language that says, you know, at the end of the month or at the end of the year, it will be over. It's just kind of indefinite. And that's one of the main sources of frustration for the migrants is they've been waiting there you know, at the migrant camp in Tijuana, they've been waiting since February of last year, March of last year, with no real end in sight. So that that not knowing that uncertainty is really starting to take its toll mentally. There's been a lot of cases uh, reported of, of depression, uh, anxiety, th- different mental health issues, just because there is no end in sight. There's no clear communication of how long it will last, how long it will stay. Uh, it's just kind of uh, le- letting them sit there in limbo. Hmm. I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jade. Uh... 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Planes, trains, automobiles. If predictions are correct, we're ready to use just about anything to finally get to see friends and family this Thanksgiving. The analysts at the Automobile Club of Southern California say this Thanksgiving will be the second busiest on record in our area, just 3% lower than the all-time high of 2019. But this year, along with traffic jams and airport crowds, travelers will have to remember pandemic safety guidelines such as masks masks, and vaccination records. Joining me is Doug Shoup, Corporate Communications and Programs Manager for the Auto Club of Southern California. Doug, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me on today. AAA says San Diego is the top destination for travelers in our region. Where else are Southern Californians headed this Thanksgiving? Well, San Diego is always one of the very most popular uh, spots for Southern Californians. But according to a survey of our Auto Club travel advisors, the number two destination is Las Vegas, followed by the Grand Canyon. Yosemite National Park comes in at number four. And the Santa Barbara Central Coast area rounds out the top five. Now, that's for Southern Californians. Nationally, AAA expects that Anaheim is going to be the second most popular destination this Thanksgiving for travelers across the country. The number one destination will be Orlando. Not a big surprise. The Disney parks play a big role in that. Now, how many Southern Californians do you predict will be traveling? Well, we're expecting 4.4 million people here in Southern California will take a trip of 50 miles or more away from home during the five-day Thanksgiving period, Wednesday through Sunday. Now, the vast majority of them will go by automobile, uh, 3.8 million people traveling by car or truck, about 494,000 will fly somewhere. And about 79,000 will take another mode of transportation, like a train, a bus, or even a cruise. Of course, cruises just recently started up again. And can you tell us, in a percentage-wise, how much that's up from last year? Yeah, the overall travel volume is 16% higher here in Southern California from uh, last year, and it's down just 3% from 2019 before the pandemic began. You know, for Southern California, this will be the second busiest Thanksgiving travel volume on record and just below the all-time record of Thanksgiving travelers, which we saw in 2019 pre-pandemic. Now, for people who are traveling by automobile, gas could be a real expense. Can you tell us about that situation? Yeah, currently in the San Diego area, uh, drivers are paying on average 
uh, four sixty five for a gallon of regular unleaded. That is about a dollar fifty more per gallon uh, than this time last year. To put that into perspective, you know, someone driving the typical midsize sedan with a fourteen gallon size fuel tank, paying a dollar fifty more per gallon means you're paying more than twenty one dollars. Uh, to fill up that tank of gas today than last year at this time. However, we don't expect that these higher gas prices will deter most people from traveling. We expect people are going to be traveling in very large numbers, taking road trips in very large numbers to reconnect with their loved ones this Thanksgiving. Yeah, what about the prices on air travel? Yeah, well, air travel actually is, uh, you know, even with the boost that we are seeing in the number of uh, passengers who are going to be boarding planes this Thanksgiving, AAA finds that the average lowest airfare is actually a little more than 27% less than last year. However, you know, we know that the pricing that is available right now and the availability, not just for airfare, but for cruises, for accommodations, that is going to go very fast. And so our advice is if you're planning to travel, you know, toward the end of the year for the holidays or even any time next year, go ahead and look at booking now. Book early because the availability and the pricing will not last. There has been so much pent-up demand and auto club travel advisors are hearing from a lot of people who are ready to get out there again. You know, when we saw those vaccinations happen, as vaccinations increased, the desire, consumer desire to travel increased as well. Let me talk about vaccinations and actually the pandemic safety precautions that are still in effect. This year is different for traveling because of them. And I want to know what do travelers need to take with them to satisfy those precautions? Well, you're right, Maureen. We are living in a different time and traveling in a different time. And so the Auto Club does remind that all travelers still follow CDC recommendations for safe travel. Also, bring plenty of face masks. And remember, they are required to be worn on any form of public transportation. And we also uh, remind you that they could be required for some indoor areas as well. Now, for those who are taking a road trip, you can all Always use AAA's COVID-19 travel restrictions map, really a great resource to find out what the restrictions are, not only at your destination, but also along your route. And AAA also says it's a good idea for some travelers, at least, to take along their vaccination cards. Where might someone need to show a vaccination card? You're right. You never know. It depends on what you're doing and what kind of events, but some entertainment venues may require vaccination cards. So it's a good idea to bring that vaccination card. Actually have the actual printed vaccination card. Of course, some locations will accept the mobile vaccination cards that you have in your phone, but you just don't know. So the best bet is to have that printed vaccination card. Just like you travel with your passport and not leave home without it, you may want to take your vaccination card as well. Now, car travelers may also encounter the kind of gridlock they haven't seen for a while. When will roads be at their worst for Thanksgiving travel? Well, we know Wednesday is going to be a very busy day on Southern California freeways. We're going to see those candy cane lights that we typically see, you know, on, on television with the red and white lights. It's going to be pretty packed. 
throughout the day on Wednesday, but it also could pick up on late Tuesday afternoon as well. Our best advice is if you can, try to leave as early in the day as possible because what you want to do is avoid that afternoon, early evening commute time when commuters are heading home from work, mixing with the travelers who are trying to get out of town or into town. Good advice. I've been speaking with Doug Shoup, Auto Club of Southern California Corporate Communications and Programs Manager, and Happy Thanksgiving, Doug. Happy Thanksgiving to you too, Maureen. Thank you. For the second part of KPBS's three-part series on racially restrictive covenants, KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim takes us to one of the most exclusive areas in the country, Rancho Santa Fe. Welcome to Rancho Santa Fe, California, 92067. This is one of the most affluent zip codes in the country. That's a snippet from a 2019 episode of Lifestyle San Diego, a local real estate show. As you can hear, the area's exclusivity is a selling point. Nestled in the rolling hills and eucalyptus groves a few miles off of the North San Diego County coast, it is a quintessential slice of Southern California paradise. But there's something else that's drawn the rich and sometimes famous to Rancho Santa Fe for nearly a century. A highly restrictive covenant that governs the community. The covenant, which many residents point to with pride, includes strict rules on the sizes of lots and the style of architecture. And for much of its history, the race and ethnicity of who could live there. Well, I think the protective covenant, as it was called at Rancho Santa Fe, um, was certainly in the vanguard of this kind of restrictions in trying to use these mechanisms to control not just who lived and purchased property in these areas, but what kinds of communities and neighborhoods that they might be. That's Phoebe Young, a historian at the University of Colorado and author of California Vieja, a book on the history of Southern California's architecture. Established in 1928, the Protective Covenant banned anyone of the, quote, African or Asiatic race, or anyone not white or of the Caucasian race, from owning or renting in Rancho Santa Fe. Rancho Santa Fe is still working from the same basic covenant that was approved in 1928. In 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racially restrictive covenants were illegal. The Rancho Santa Fe Association, however, didn't remove the racist language until 1973. And to this day, people still refer to the neighborhood as the Covenant. That's one thing that Rancho Santa Fe resident Mary Bills wants to see change. We're just asking that uh, they address these code words. There there really are still sending signals of discrimination by using these words, by having this document. People of goodwill, when they know something is wrong and don't change it, then, then I think there's a problem. Together with local real estate agent Janet Lawless-Christ, Bills wants the Rancho Santa Fe Association to rename the Protective Covenant and stop people from referring to the neighborhood that way. Bill says these words send a clear message that even today, only the white and affluent are welcome. I still feel that sense of exclusivity. Well, if I went to some of the boutiques in Rancho Santa Fe, I would get a second look. I can guarantee you that. Lisa Montes feels the exclusion that Bills is referring to. She's a fourth-generation daughter of La Colonia or Eden Gardens, a small community where Rancho Santa Fe's gardeners and housekeepers, all mostly Latino, could actually live. Over the decades, Eden Gardens became something rare in North Coastal San Diego County, a thriving, largely Latino community. 
something Montes wants people to remember as the area begins to gentrify. I saw a couple come up in a very expensive car, and it was clear to me that they were scoping out the properties. And every time I see that, I get very frustrated because they don't know this community. They are there to scope, scoop up a deal. That's the bottom line. Back in Rancho Santa Fe, Bills and Lawless are facing stiff opposition to their effort to strike the covenant from the community's lexicon. Lawless Chris says she's had people ask her to stop. I've heard people saying, just stop stirring the pot. What pot are we stirring? And why do we have to stop stirring the pot? We have not reached a place that there is not a racially charged connotation to the word covenant. Christy Whalen is the Rancho Santa Fe Association manager. She would not agree to an interview, but in a written statement to KPBS said, Covenant is a term meaning an agreement and does not have racial connotations. It merely describes the document and its purpose. Both Bills and Lawless Chris acknowledge the symbolic nature of their effort and know it won't change what Rancho Santa Fe looks like, but they still think it's an important step. I'm not trying to erase history. I'm not trying to tell people not to know the history. Know it and learn from it. In that way, they're fighting a similar fight as Lisa Montes, whose family was locked out of living in Rancho Santa Fe so many years ago. A battle over what gets remembered and why that matters today. Christina Kim, KBBS News. Tomorrow, we continue this conversation. How are San Diegans choosing to acknowledge the racial restrictions hidden in their homes? Join us tomorrow for the conclusion of our Racial Covenants series. It's not just big energy corporations that have a problem with methane. It's also in our garbage. The heat-trapping gas that's a major contributor to climate change has been found leaking from our landfills. Operators at San Diego's landfills have used various methods to control the emissions, but have not been able to stop them. And the consensus is that methane will continue to be a source of greenhouse gas emissions at landfills until the waste material that emits the gas, rotting food and organic waste, is disposed of in some other way. Joining me is Voice of San Diego reporter Mackenzie Elmer. Mackenzie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. How big a problem are these methane emissions at San Diego landfills? They're a pretty large source of methane emissions uh, for the state on the whole and for San Diego as well. In California, they're the largest point source of methane. And globally, methane accounts for 20% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Apparently, some methane leaks are expected at landfills, but when do emissions exceed that limit? So the state... Air Resources Board sets a limit on landfill emissions, and that's regulated by the local air pollution control districts. And that limit is 500 parts per million volume. And the way to think about that is if you have a million cubic inches of air, think about it in a little package, 500 inches of those are methane. And I'm told by landfill experts that it's pretty easy to exceed that limit, especially because landfills are constantly shifting and moving as rotting trash and garbage, you know, kind of decompose, it creates space for trash to move again. And that's part of the problem and reason why we're seeing lots of leaks of methane, because you have a shifting sort of piece of land and cracks uh, appear and methane can leak out that way. And so it's, it's difficult for us to capture that gas completely. 
So here in San Diego, some landfills have been fined for flaring. What is that? That's the process of actually burning off the methane that's found within the landfill. Landfills use that technique because they have to put the methane somewhere. Um, It can't be captured completely, I guess, by different resources that they use the methane for. Like at the Miramar landfill, they capture that methane and put it into generators to create electricity. And that runs a couple of facilities there. But uh, it's all sort of a balancing act of how much methane they, they can emit legally versus how much they need to burn off in order to actually get that gas out of the landfill, uh, which is an important process for just keeping the landfill from becoming a a potential burn uh, hazard, actually. Talk to us more about this gas recovery and gas collection effort that landfills are using to try to control methane leaks and control the amount of methane at the landfill. One way that you can capture the methane gas is through a system of of pipes that are basically vertically thrust into the many layers of trash at a landfill. And then there's a sort of pumping system um, placed in these, they're called wells, these pipes. And what essentially is happening is, is the methane is being sucked from the landfill. And so there's a series of these pipes all over the surface of the landfill and, and uh, landfill operators have to essentially kind of balance and figure out where the methane is coming from and suck a little bit from one side, <laughs> suck a little bit from another side and, and kind of keep an array of these, these different uh, wells taking out methane at an appropriate rate um, and still trying to remain under that state limit of 500 parts per million volume. And so it seems the consensus is that you can control the amount of methane leakage, but you can't control methane from leaking entirely, except if you get organic waste out of the landfills. There's an effort now to get organic waste out of the landfills in California. How is that going? Not going super well, um, as far as I understand it. There's not really a convenient composting program for residents in San Diego County, the various cities. Uh, But yes, the best way to actually get this methane out is to just divert organic matter from the landfill in the first place, because that is the stuff, it's that byproduct of that rotting of organic waste that creates the actual methane. And so Uh, The state has new regulations in place where cities and private operators are going to have to figure out a way to make composting available for residents and businesses. That's uh, starting next year in 2022, and the state's going to start cracking down with fines uh, in a couple years after that, 2024. So we'll have to see uh, how quickly San Diego can ramp up its composting efforts. Right. So in January, San Diego is, is set to start organic waste recycling. And what impact is that expected to make on methane emissions at landfills? Well, we'll have to see how uh, expansive the composting programs are in the first place. You know, we're again, we have a lot of private haulers here like EDCO. They're going to be responsible for uh, offering composting. Uh, I know the city of San Diego did tell me that their current estimate of methane emissions from landfills is 73% uh, of that methane is is leaking out, and they hope to capture 90% of it by 2035 under a climate action plan that they just released. So we'll have to see how composting um, affects that. I would imagine if if it does become as prolific as the state is hoping, methane emissions should be reduced. I've been speaking with the voice of San Diego reporter Mackenzie Elmer. Mackenzie, thank you. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Earlier this year, we aired a series paying tribute to San Diego's great black musicians. Today, you'll hear from one of those artists, jazz soloist Rebecca Jade. She's the winner of multiple San Diego Music Awards and performs in her own band, Rebecca Jade and the Cold Fact. She's also a backup singer with Sheila E. We asked her to reflect on her influences, her childhood with a jazz singer for a mother, the songs that made her fall in love with music, and the artists that shaped her style. She starts with how the pandemic has affected her. For me personally, it was like cancellation after cancellation after cancellation of dates right at the beginning, you know? So it's a bit of like, oh boy, okay, what am I going to do? What do we do? So there was a sense of that kind of, um, oh no, (laughs) a little bit. But then it was like, okay, so, so now what? This is a reality. What can I do? And that's so that's really where things kind of shifted mentally. I know sometimes it's hard to recognize your power when all the world seems to be bringing you down. And I think some of it reflected also in song. A lot of the songs I try I write are also very encouraging. I try to write songs that are like uplifting or, you know, and so some of the songs that came out of this pandemic has reflected that as well. So it's a matter of, you know, we could all be what was me or we can be like, OK, this is our reality. What can we do about it? My mom's a jazz singer, shout out to my beautiful mom. And um, growing up, she helped expose me to a lot of different musical styles. Billie Holiday was, was one of the icons, you know. Good morning, honey, you old gloomy say. Good morning, honey, thought we said goodbye last night. Her voice, there was something just so haunting. And so I, I can't even explain what it is. I couldn't even tell you technically, but there was something about her voice when I was when I was first hearing her that just drew me to her. Wish I forget you, but you're here to stay. It seems I met you when my love went away. Now every day I start by saying to you. 
Good morning, Hardy. What's new? She lived a, a life, you know. There was such sorrow and sadness, and yet power and vulnerability. And there's so many layers that I think I hear when I hear her her voice, and it just draws me to her. And so it kind of reflects in my writing. I don't know why, but I just I always tend to write love songs or. Yeah, I try to write songs that are encouraging and empowering as well. But I also tend to to have a lot of like love songs or heartbreak songs, and I think that being a fan of Billie Holiday almost gave me the permission to be comfortable to do that. You know, yeah, she was one of the first voices that that just really stuck into my my ear, my soul, my my heart. Good morning, Holiday. Sit down. Whitney Houston is definitely a big influence for me. I tried to sing like her. I was trying to learn her runs, and she just had this pure voice that it was undeniable. All at once, I finally took a moment. All at Once was just one of those songs that I just loved the melody and I just loved the way she sang. I loved the way she sang everything. I just remember that being one of the the songs that was not really, you know, everybody knew I want to dance with somebody and greatest love of all. But I think this one was just one of those that was not as popular but was such a great song. When she passed, I remember going, you know, like a lot of people do, oh, I want to reminisce on, and I was like, gosh, she had so many amazing songs, and I knew so many of them, and she just really, really impacted me to be that voice to try to, to try to be like, I, I did try to sing like her, and she, that's how, that's how much she meant to me. Wishing you come back to me. Celia Cruz is one of, gosh, she she was just she kind of is more of a representation of the style of music that my my mom and I listened to a lot. Uh, I was partly raised in Puerto Rico, like I said, my mom was a a jazz singer. She was a jazz singer there in Puerto Rico. So Latin music that Puerto Rican Cuban was just flowing and everywhere. It was part of it was part of my upbringing. When we moved to um, California, it was just one of those like we always still played that music a lot. When it was time to do something, to make dinner, to get ready for something, we were always playing Celia Cruz and Tito Puentes, and it was part of the catalog of my upbringing. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
top five movies is Amadeus. You know, that's the soundtrack is, is all, <laughs> is Mozart's Requiem. And there's such a contrast, you know, you hear this wide array of instrumentation that is just powerful. And I, you know, and I, I can hear the melodies in my head and you just, for me physically, like my head moves when it's like these like low and big sounds. comes in and and then or there's a lead vocalist that that is takes this you know this part and it's just there's something that is just so moving and it's incredible to see it and feel it I just I just love it My mom really helped me a lot with vocal harmonies. Oftentimes it would be just the two of us singing, you know. He's As I got a little older, she started to share with me bands like Manhattan Transfer, where vocals are just almost the instrumentation. You know, they, they are, they are the, the main instrument. Anytime we would go on car rides, or if I'd go on car rides with my dad, I remember we drove one time, I think, to Texas, and we were listening to Manhattan Transfer, and just, it's just, uh, again, a different style that, like classical, where, you know, you just have this wide range of instrumentation. I love how Manhattan Transfer, like how they take vocal and put a wide range within that scope, within that style, you know? I, I, I'm so blown away by it, and uh, I love listening to vocal acrobatics like Manhattan Jazz. I truly believe that the Mozarts and the Take Six and the and the Manhattan Transfer, that all reflects still into the shows that I do, either with Sheila E. or my own stuff, Cold Fact, and all, it all relates uh, 100%. So I encourage people to keep at it if there's any doubts within yourself of, you know, oh, I don't know how this is going to help or contribute. I truly believe it all contributes in some form or fashion. So to stick with it and uh, at some point it manifests itself to reveal that, that it, was, uh, it was part of your evolution. That was San Diego musician Rebecca Jade. You can find links to all the songs that influenced her as well as her own music on our website at kpbs.org. 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.